0: Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast, produced in association with the
1: Marketeers Network. Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. This week, we're going to return to our roots again. We're going back to our regular career stories theme. Needless to say, I reckon we've pretty much covered the COVID-19 angle of PR and agency management. So if you want do want more on that, then it's safe to say you can have a listen to the most recent episodes of the podcast um, or indeed the 25 plus COVID-19 related articles on prmoment.com. I think you're going to find all you need to know. It really has become quite a body of work. This week on the PMM Podcast, we've got Phil Hall, chairman at the PHA Group. I've wanted to get Phil on the show for a long time, um, and finally the stars seem to have aligned. For those of you who are not aware, Phil was the editor of the News of the World from 1995 to 2000. His old bosses included Piers Morgan and Rupert Murdoch. He was at the absolute pinnacle of British tabloid journalism before he left it all behind and in 2005 founded Phil Hall Associates, now PHA Group. He started the business in his front room and his first client was none other than Paul McCartney. He went on to represent Heather McCartney and we'll come on to the reasons why that happened in a little while in the infamous divorce case. And he has since built PHA Group to have revenues of well north of nine million in the pre-COVID-19 world that we all used to enjoy. The PHA Group employs around 100 people. As ever, a quick events plug from me. Um, you'll see them all on plmoment.com on the homepage. Um, we've got one new event that's going down really well. It's LinkedIn as a marketing channel. Um, we've got another one which looks at the creative side of things, which is when can we all be creatively brave again? And we've just launched how creative technologies and innovative platforms will redefine brand communications post a lockdown. That last one is free to attend and the previous two are a mere 29 99 as long as you get your tickets fairly quickly before the end of the early bird period. I should finally say thanks as ever to our PRM podcast sponsors, the PRCA. Phil, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Ben. Good to be here.
1: Phil, should we get the, the elephant in the room for, out of the way first? Let's get the COVID, the COVID chat done and dusted, shall we? Um, how have things been for PHA? Um, over the past few months,
0: very difficult first couple of weeks, Ben. To be honest, um, because many of our clients were planning events, so some of them are sporting brands, and clearly those those uh, matches, games, championships were cancelled. So very difficult, really. You know, business fell off a cliff for a couple of weeks. But then we just repurposed ourselves, started targeting clients in the health sector, get the fitness sector, all the areas that are prevalent in people's minds at the moment, and. Uh, we're back in a very strong position again. So, what you, you
1: sort of changed the, the focus of, of, of the business in, in a really short time in terms of your, your, your client mix? So, no, no, not
0: repurposing the business, just repurposing and focusing the uh, new business drive. So, instead of looking across the piece at all sorts of businesses, we were looking at things that really would be COVID affected. So, we looked at uh, hygiene in hospitals, we want, want a big client in that area. We want a couple of people who've had crisis as a result of COVID. Uh, you know one, one business just made inappropriate remarks about it um, but you know just really looking at areas where we can really um, look at the news agenda and, and feed off it. Very importantly you had
1: credentials
0: to be able to win clients in those new areas. Yeah, absolutely we've got a number of senior journalists in our organization people who have you know edited national newspapers ran you know investigations for, for newspapers and uh, and also, we have a, a gentleman who was a global correspondent for CNN. So we've got people with real practical experience of not only PR but understanding how journalists are thinking and, and just what the story would be.
1: You've made a few people redundant, haven't you? Is that right? Which is always a really difficult thing to do. That was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And that um, was awful.
0: I mean, we made 15 people redundant, but you have to. You know, you can, you can carry on as it you know as you are, and just dig a deeper hole and uh, make make it much much harder to come back. Or you can be strong and proactive and do what you have to do. And uh, you know, we didn't make those people redundant because they were, you know, bad practitioners. We just had no choice. And um and it, you know, in the end, you have to make difficult decisions in business and it can't always be, you know, positive ones. And uh I've gotta say the people who have left us, left us with great nobility and dignity. They understood the situation, they've been very uh you know, we've had many, many positive uh, emails and responses from them. So it's been it's been hard, but it's been you know it's been understood
1: why we had to do it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think that is um, for everyone running a business that is without doubt the hardest the hardest part of it, isn't it? And uh, it I is. Think- you've got to be quick,
0: Benny. You know, you you sit and wait six months, and as I say, you've got a you know got a bigger problem because you know you're going to be making losses initially because you're, you're running a you know, a business that, you know, had a nine million pound turnover and staff to affect that. And suddenly you haven't got that nine million pound turnover. Then you've got to, you must react quickly. And I think other companies have found that, you know, difficult to do because they're so big. And, you know, when you've got big multi-million pound clients and it's very difficult to, you know, cut staff. It's, it's a very, it's a much harder formula to
1: work out. Right. Um, but when we spoke before, you, I thought it was interesting. You've already started to see a few green shoots of recovery, have you? Yeah, we won 11
0: new clients in April, uh, 13 new clients in May. So absolutely, you know, I, I was concerned that we better win anybody, but we've had 24 new clients in the last two months.
1: It's, um, uh, and what is that? Are those are those new projects from existing clients or genuine new clients? If you some say? clients coming back, um, you know, people who had shut down in the
0: first couple of months. I'm not going to say panic because that's a, that sounds a critical word, but just felt that you had to shut down and, have a look at their situation, landscape, landscape, they've come back. We've had people giving us new, uh, different sort of projects because of um, COVID, you know, realizing that actually maybe they've got to target, you know, different areas and different ways of doing their business. And and then pure new ones from our new business initiatives, just uh, looking at, you know, various crises out there, seeing if we can help with them and uh, just being very, very positive and proactive. You know, you, I think, you know, when you're in PR, you can, Stick a message out there that we're fighting for our lives. I mean, who's going to hire you in, in that basis? You, you've got to go out there and show that you have been positive and you've, you've you know you've, you've turned the corner in your own business and you've got people who are very proactive, very on the very much on the front foot. They're not sitting back, you know, worrying about their future. They're they're grabbing the future with both hands and making things happen. And uh, that's, that's I think we've got
1: that message through to clients, and that's why they're signing with us. And it's a it's the type of sectors and the type of work that you were talking about before was it and in 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 relatively new sectors for you such as healthcare and the like but also on the on the crisis stuff that is uh, you are more well known for yeah they're new clients but they're in areas that we you know, we've got a lot of
0: health clients who have had for a long while and um yeah. so are areas we know we've got expertise in and um uh, it's, it's hard to say why i i think it's it's just about having aggressive proactive people really who are really not sitting on their laurels and thinking, you know, poor me. They're going out there and making things happen. And of course, let's be honest, this sort of pandemic crisis does make people focus because, you know, jobs are at risk and uh, they know that, you know, they've got to go out there and, you know, fight and so fight in the market and make things happen. So, um, but the biggest, you know, the biggest issue for us really is fixed costs. You know, you've got fixed costs based around office space and we've got four floors at our office in uh, Soho and, you know, we're in quite an iconic office there. We're in Hammer House, which used to be the Hammer House of Horrors film studio. And we've got four floors. But, of course, we're learning that this Zoom um, and uh, Microsoft Teams era is, is coming along very quickly. I was, I was speaking to somebody at a massive, massive organisation in Britain. I think they've about 40,000 staff. And they were talking about trying to bring more home working over the next three or four years into their organisation they said it's happening three to four weeks because they had to and they just they felt normally their organization moves so slowly but because of the pandemic and it had to happen and um, in our case we're now looking and saying well actually do we need to go into the office so much? Okay. Clients are happy to do zoom calls, happy to do zoom meetings and what we found actually is no nobody's off sick, We've got no sickness in the organization at all, normally you've got four or five people off sick at any one time so not using public transport, they're not spreading it among themselves you know, they have not had a hangover because they've been out in the town all night. So we change the dynamic of the office and we don't need to be in the office so much. And, uh, you know, for, for many staff, traveling to London is, you know, into London is very expensive. It's very, uh, you know, it can be grab grubby and <laughs> disease, you know, spreads the room among trains and buses. So there are many advantages to it. And uh, we have our teams come on to Zoom at 8.30 in the morning, meet as a team, uh, discuss their issues as a team, somehow it's quicker and more efficient on Zoom. Whereas if they were doing it in a meeting in the office, you know, somebody's always on the telephone, somebody doesn't quite get to the meeting until 10 minutes after it started. Meetings go on a bit longer because they're having a coffee while they're doing it. Uh, or somebody gets up and makes a coffee. You know, the Zoom is much more efficient and more effective. So in many ways, our biggest problem is we've got four floors of fixed costs mm. and a four and a half year contract there. And we're currently looking to see if there are any other PR agencies or, you know, like-minded organisations who want to hire an office. And you know, because we don't need those four floors anymore, and they're all set up perfectly for remote working. They're very modern. We spent a lot of money on them last year,
1: and uh, so yeah, if there's anybody out there looking to move office, we'll do you a deal. <laughs> I suspect there'd be a few people thinking the same thing. That's the. I mean, it's I, we were, interesting chat to have now, actually. The that hybrid. you're seeing it as getting a sort of hybrid model are you in terms of office and and working from home um i think so i mean i I think also
0: from a fit from a health point of view i think what we would do is get a team to come in for a week and then a different team to come in the next week um so that people are not sitting you know too close to one another i mean clearly they're not going to be able to sit within two meters which cuts down the the uh potential capacity that we can have anyway but i think we'll just spread it out. And I think as the government said, there's no reason we've got people who are happy to come in the office at seven in the morning and work to three in the afternoon. You know, others will come at 11 in the morning and work to eight or nine o'clock. So we'll, we'll stagger it so people are not on the peak times um, because, you know, it's easy to say you can cycle to work, but actually our office, for instance, has a you know, rule that we had to sign saying you can't have bikes in the office. So it's not, it's not as easy as people think. And, um, right. But yeah, so new way of working it certainly is the opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper and do it how you would want to do it rather than how it's evolved into. Um,
1: yeah. I have, a, I have a lot of conversations with people, agency owners like you and it, the, the, the one potential span in the works are those are those longer term leases, aren't they? Um, and they that's, are. You, that's you the, can't get out of them.
0: There's nothing yeah. you can do. You know, there's, we, uh, it's very difficult because we can't really afford those, those, uh, um, you know rent prices now, and um, landlords are going to find a, a massive drop in their occupancy. So it's going to be a very difficult match. I just hope that we just hope they're going to be reasonable and and listen to us. But um, if we can well, sublet a couple of our floors, maybe to a public affairs company, we don't do public affairs, or maybe to a financial consultancy, or something that has a uh, you know an analogous sort of area to us it could be very advantage to both us and them as well as you know saving us some of our fixed costs
1: sure but just moving on just tell me about the story of pho media because it, it's a it's quite a journey you've been on isn't it for your first client as i mentioned earlier was heather mccartney um to now frankly just being a multi-sector pr firm with nearly 100 employees and indeed outside investors relatively what was that last year sometime
0: yeah that's true i mean yeah yeah it grew very quickly actually we were you know, i worked out of my front room, as you said, um, with one client, which was Paul McCartney, who'd been, who I knew and had been consulting with, while I was still in newspapers. And he encouraged me to, to set up a PR firm. But then, three months into the the business, he, um, he he told me he was getting divorced, and that the law firm that he was that he'd hired had their own PR firm, and he wanted to make sure it all was kept in-house in house in that sort of divorce firm. And I said, well, in that, don't worry, I'll look after Heather which didn't please him at all. I uh, remember him saying, I know where you live. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, what are you going to do? You're going to come around and beat me up, Paul, because I'm now representing your wife. And uh, so that was a slightly funny start. I also found myself in my first week in Ecuador, um, meeting the president of Ecuador <laughs> to discuss an oil deal, which I had no idea where that had come from. And um, it turned out it had come from Heather, Heather Mills, who had a friend whose father was... Doing an order with Ecuador, so I had a really strange start. I had a, was representing a, a leader of a state, and then by the way, I flew over to Ecuador to see him, and he got overthrown when I was flying over Colombia. So it was a very strange start. I arrived in eventually in Ecuador to find the president overthrown and a new president in place, and, it was <laughs> <crazy>. <laughs> and I never, I didn't get paid either a penny. And uh, when I, I was telling Heather Mills this story, and she said I re- recommended you to that, and. Um, she said, "How much did you did it cost you in lost fees and travelling and everything else?" And she then paid the bill, which was amazing of her, really. And um, so it was a there, it was an interesting starting point. I then pitched a very, I got a new client, a third client, and pitched a very high fee to them, thinking that there's no chance of getting it. And I did, got it, and that gave me the, the opportunity then to hire staff and uh, and build from there. And um,
1: but it was literally you. It was you in your front room to start with. Yeah, you, you had in the end Heather Mills um as a client you did some bizarre trip to Ecuador which was, was a lot of fun but didn't actually bring you any revenue no. and after about three months you won a um a, a second client and and sort of that gave you frankly the the the, the cash to to pay for yes. the start of the business right
0: exactly that so it was um yeah it, it was hand to mouth I'd just taken on a new mortgage I had babies and you know three-year-old and you know, one year old. So it was. It was. There were tricky times. And my wife is is a corporate lawyer, and bless her, she bravely gave up her career and said, "Look, I will back you and try and you know run the accounts department and set up any legal contracts," and uh, which she did and still does to this day. And uh, <laughs> That's you know, she her job at the at the very
1: start. You both, did, or was she yeah, a corporate she
0: lawyer? We we'd moved. We we lived in Yorkshire. I won't bore you with a story. We lived in Yorkshire for a couple of years and then came back to London. She gave up her job in, I mean, she was, you know, patents attorney and representing Beckett's, uh, Beckett's Kaiser. And then when she came to London, she was going to get a new job in that field and just stayed off it and went and did a QuickBooks course. And, you know, really, we we really did it from the bottom up. So well, she learned accountancy.
1: You know, she did all the contracts for us. And um, and, and that's and a partnership, came. is it? Because that is, yeah, yeah. She pretty We're much is in here. She still looks after business side of, of, of things and, and, and you're, the, you're the PR guy. Exactly. Yeah, the success of the business is
0: down, you know, as much to her as it is to me. I mean, she's, she had HR policies in place from day one, which I just thought was nuts. I just said, well, we'll just hire someone and see how we get on. And you no, know, she just um, put things in place, which mean, if you look at my business now, we've got two MDs, Stuart Skinner and Shelley Prostick, who have been with us for 13 years out of the 15 years we've been going. And it's because we have proper structure and proper evaluation and, you know, kept people motivated. And I've got, you know, Katie Matthews has been with us 13 years. I've got a number of people who have been with us more than 10 years. And uh, the stability has really been a, a great sort of focus and success of the business, really. And that's down to my, my wife, Marina, really having, you know, proper. Because uh, you don't know, most businesses when they start off, it's a bit hand to mouth. And we were hand to mouth, but with proper structure, and that's yeah. made
1: a huge difference. And that's, that's enabled you to A, hang on to staff because they believed in, in the business the and its growth, yeah. and, and, and B, as, just from a legal and HR perspective, it's is enabled you to scale it quicker, probably. I think so,
0: very much so. And having a system always, they're not just scaling it on winning a client, scaling it on a, you know, having a proper structure and people who are you know, hiring people who've got expertise in those areas and then hiring journalists to work alongside them who could be the bridge between the you know the prs and the and the newspapers and magazines but you know don't get me wrong we're not a journalistic operation the, the, the pr people here are in many ways as good and if not better than some of the people who come from newspapers i've had very senior newspaper people come in and say i've learned so much from the guy sitting next to me who's you know 15 years younger than me but has been doing pr for 5 years and i ever could have done you know being just a journalist because it's a very different you know it's very different people think they can just walk in and they can't because it's so much more about relationships and um it's a personality thing to a large extent it is It's chemistry personality about going the extra mile understanding that you're not a pr you're a friend a counselor you know somebody who has to sometimes really make very difficult decisions and recommendations and um you know, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody just now before this call and um, they, they work on clients that pay three to four million pounds a year. And, you know, it's very difficult when, you, when you've got people at that level because I, th- I suspect, you know, holding on to the client is the most important thing. Whereas for us, truthfully, giving the best advice is the most important thing. There's nothing worse than compromising your advice and then constantly worrying about, oh, I've compromised it to try and keep the contract rather than actually telling the client the truth about what, what they face. And, um, you know, you do yeah. lose clients sometimes that way, but it always pays you back because they yeah. recommend you to somebody else.
1: Definitely. Um, they come, Or they come back after six months, a year. Exactly. And go, we've had
0: a lot of that. Yeah. We've had a lot of people come back to us and, uh, we've had, I mean, we've got clients. I mean, I've been with Genting Stanley for 11 years. Uh, we had, uh, Victor Chanda for nine years. We've got, uh, we've got a number. We had, um, uh, a UFC for seven, eight years, and we've had a lot of clients we've had for a long, long time. And uh, we've got a health clinic's been with us for twelve years. So there's a lot of, a lot of you know, stability, lot of stability, and that's so important.
1: But I think I mean, talking about stability, I think you mentioned on, on our pre-show chat that you lost, was it forty percent or thereabouts of your revenue at the start of COVID? I did, yeah, um, that's right. And it's probably moved. You probably uh, when we spoke, you you reckon you bought twenty percent back already. Yeah, Which, I, mean, I think that that's is, that's a roller coaster, isn't it? I mean, wow, it is a roller coaster, and I think the whole
0: pandemic has been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Really, and um, I think you've just got to go with it, and you've got to accept these are the circumstances we're in now, you know. And we've said to some clients, you know, look, if you want to, if you want to, hold your fees back, pay us in two or three months' time. You know, we've got a relationship with you; we're not going to desert you because you're now having problems. And we've had them come back and say. Actually, thank you for that. We've done that. You know, we, we deferred the payment, but now we'll pay you more than we were before because you've shown us, you know, you're not, you're not trying to, you're not here just for the money. You're here for the long term and you're trying to you know, make things happen for us. So, you know, it pays to
1: be honourable, I think, and have integrity. Definitely. Now, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but what did what did Paul McCartney say to you when you told him you were going to represent his wife in their divorce case? How did that work? His
0: actual words were, I know where you live. I <laughs> 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 said, so, well, you're going to come back right and beat me up, are you, Paul? He
1: no. said, well, how can you do this? How can
0: you do this to me? And I, and, you know, and I won't break the confidences in the relationship, but let's just say Heather was always far more... Um, uh, engaging, really. Paul was very, very remote a lot of the time, and it wasn't a difficult decision. And, you know, a lot of things that were published following when we were representing her were not coming from Heather or myself. There was a lot of, you know, nefarious things going on in newspapers at that time. And I have to say, it didn't always, um, you know, some of the things that were written didn't really reflect what was happening. She was not leaking stuff to the papers. She was not talking to journalists. My advice to her was to keep her head down and really, you know, try and uh, weather the storm and let the lawyers take the, the proper course and don't prejudice, you know, any any court case coming up by by going public first. And um, it Just so, remind us, when was this, Phil? What, yes. So this is in the year 2000 and... Two uh no, sorry, we just started so it must be two thousand and four or five, I think no,
1: okay. um, so, so I mean, I'll say it rather than new, but it was it was around the time that afterwards we all it, it, there seemed to be a fair bit of phone hacking going on, which uh, you probably is not what you want to allude to, but but it wasn't that, 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 but you're right, I mean, there was yeah. stuff was
0: going on, and also I had a great relationship with her because I edited Hello magazine and she uh, came to me with a crazy charity idea. she'd been in Birmingham and seen the hundred thousand prosthetic limbs sitting in a warehouse and said you know, why why are they there? And they said, well, the health service said, we don't regenerate them. We just, you know, people use them and get thrown away. And she came to me and said, would you pay £50,000 for a feature with me where I take the 100,000 prosthetic limbs to India and give them out to kids who have got nothing to help them walk? And I said, yes, fantastic feature. We did the feature. uh, It ran in Hello across about six or seven pages, distributing these prosthetic limbs. And the uh, national newspaper ran a story saying, Heather Mills ripped off prosthetic limb charity, which was totally untrue. They they claimed that she took a £50,000 fee from me. And uh, she hadn't. The £50,000 fee gone straight to the charity. She hadn't touched it. And so she sued the newspaper. I was the witness. And we became friends as a result of it. So we had a, you know, that's how I came into PR, really. It was that trust. And she encouraged Paul to talk to me. Paul was ringing me from all over the world. Um, for advice, and um
1: that's really how it all started. Now you've got some stories, haven't you? You mentioned it before. This this Columbia, um yeah. thing you talked about, where you you basically end up in the middle of a coup, right? I mean, were you was, how, how bad? Were you fearful of your life at, at any particular moment, or were you just chuckling away to yourself?
0: Well, I, I probably should have been, but I was chuckling away to myself. I had to because I'd taken a former colleague from Hello Magazine with me because I needed a Spanish speaker. She was in, having a complete meltdown, so there's no point in me having a meltdown. I would say, oh, no, this is normal. You know, when, you, when you're a journalist, you always get it in crisis. And I had been in all sorts of situations as a journalist, so I wasn't particularly, when I mean, we landed in Colombia because of the coup, and then they flew us to Ecuador the following day, and it was literally like a Banana Republic movie. I mean, they were standing with machine guns on the, around the uh, presidential palace, and I was led in by this team, you know, from the oil company to meet the president and um, I mean, I can how, I was, I still out? remember this. Oh, it was just nuts. I mean, the, I, was, I was advised in the end to get out because the president who had been overthrown who was due to be my client was then coming back with the army behind him. It was just <laughs> incredible. It was incredible. He was holed up in a Brazilian embassy and was coming back. And they said, you just need to get out of here. And I just got the first flight out and-
1: uh, And that's what it was, you did <laughs> you didn't drive to the border or anything like that. You, no, you're, you're no, we flew out. I, it was Fifteen years ago, and I can't remember how we got the flights
0: and everything. But I think my right. wife was booking them at home, and we were just we just got out. And um,
1: the, the, um, just just going back to your earlier career because that's a fascinating as well. You you clearly worked in journalism as your sort of first f- first career, and then you've had a second career in PR. Is in, in sim- only simplistic terms, but. Yeah. It just go How did you end up working for Piers Morgan? How did the whole News of the World thing come about? Just because it, it was quite it was a strange situation, really. He,
0: um, you, you know, when you were on a national newspaper, members of the public ring with stories. And I was on the Sunday People newspaper, and a guy rang up with a story. and He was a pen friend, would you believe, to Myra Hindley and um, and Ian Brady, the Moore's killers he'd been, this this old boy had written to them and got replies and they were revealing all sorts of stuff to him. And he then sold those stories to the newspapers. So it would be, you know, Myra Hindley applying for parole and whatever it was. And um, I went to a book launch, a book about David Jason written by Piers Morgan. And Piers came over to me and said, "Um, does this old boy ring you at the Sunday People? And I said, why? Does he ring you as well? And he said, Phil, he's my grandfather. (laughs) And I said... How? He's never mentioned that. He said, oh, no, don't worry. He's ashamed of me because we had a fallout in the family. And But I'm just delighted that he's a friend of yours. I never spoke to Piers again for seven or eight years. And he became editor of the News of the World, and I was features editor there. So I was number 15 on the paper, roughly. And he came into my office and said, do you remember the conversation about my grandfather? And I said, I do. I said, I rang him the other day, and he gave me this amazing um, testimony of you as a person. And I'd like you to become my deputy. So I jumped 15 places on the paper from number 15 to number two. As a result of Piers' his granddad, just <laughs> bizarre. And Piers and I have stayed friends ever since. And he yeah. recommended me to be editor when he left. And uh, my sons ended up at the same school. And, uh, yeah, I've got so much time
1: for him. Right. Yeah. And that was uh, – because, when, when, again, when, when are we – where are we date-wise now, Phil? When, so when that was uh, – that was when I was
0: – I came to Fleet Street very late. I was uh, got a staff job when I was thirty-one, so you know it was eight. That was eighty-six. Okay. Um, And then it was nine years. You know, I became chief reporter of the People, news editor of the People, uh, news editor of the Sun Express, features editor at the uh, News of the World, and then uh,
1: then deputy editor editor. So, um, I new jobs. And (laughs) at that time, it was a. I mean clearly tabloid journalism has its critics and and has its controversies but it must have been a fun place to work right? It was fun
0: it was it was very very hard and um you know I I, I think I stayed longer than any other editor in the history of the paper five years or I think there was one many years ago it was very hard I mean every week they expected you to have an agenda setting story and um you know, it was, it was really tough. But when I took over, we had a circulation that equaled the joint circulation of the Sunday Mirror and the people. I think it was about 4.5 million. And the Sunday people and the Sunday Mirror equaled 4.5 million. And when I left, we were one million clear of them. So I think we did a good job. And we, we jailed over a hundred people, you know, for gun running, IRA, triads, match fixing in cricket matches, largely led by Mazum who later became, the you know, the fake sheikh, you know, sounded to me enormously to see how his reputation got shredded, really, because we did a lot of really great investigations. And, um, right. um, you know, my view was you had to be careful, you know, with a newspaper, if, if you just did showbiz and celebrity stuff, is that really a purpose of a newspaper? I felt investigations were the most important thing. And when I left, I mean, it, it was bizarre, you know, the, it was... Uh, I don't mind saying I was, you know, asked to leave and uh two days later they asked me to come back.
1: <laughs> Which I've
0: never told anybody before. They asked me to come back and join the Sun. And I said, I said, I just don't understand this. And there was a political coup going on, you know, Rebecca Brooks and they wanted to give her the opportunity and um and you know, I don't resent it because it's it's what happens in newspapers about like being a football manager, really. You do your best for as long as you can but there comes a time and you know five years the helm of one newspaper like that was very it's very hard it's seven day a week job um you know you're never on holiday you're constantly right on the edge of the precipice because you're trying to break big stories you know the paper's always pressure. been threatened and so it was a you know hard job
1: yeah and you I mean you must have Rupert Murdoch there was a working relationship there was he I imagine best, was,
0: best boss I ever had I mean right. fantastic he uh whenever you're in trouble and I don't mean I was in trouble but you know I'd write the Lawrence Delalio story for instance with his cocaine and first person on the phone would be Rupert saying are you okay I'm here for you if you have any issues call me 100% supportive every single time never came on and said you know, is this a screw up or have you got this wrong? He was always supportive. And um, you know, when things were going well, you didn't hear from him so much. It was um it was it's really taught me a lot that actually when, you know, and in newspapers sometimes you make a mistake. And I you know, we we didn't get sued once in my five years. So I was um very fortunate in many ways. I mean, people came on or we won the cases. And um, apart from one actually, which was just a mistake, the headline didn't match the story, but we had um He was always supportive, very, very positive. And uh, even again, when I left, I told you they asked me to come back in two days. Well, also five months later, he wrote to me again, uh, you know, suggesting I came back to the organisation. I think it was going to, what I can gather, it was a job in America. And uh, I was too busy sulking because I was (laughs) quite upset that I'd been asked to leave when the paper had done so well. And I just turned it down. But he, you know, he's a big man and I have so much respect for him. And he would come on... And he'd go through the paper, people don't realise this, go through the paper and say, why are you doing that? You know, you're doing a story about a celebrity there, having a, an affair with a, with a pretty girl. He's single, she's single, why is that a story? And he'd make you think about the justification every time and why you were doing something and whether the justification was really there. And it was, um, it was very interesting. Uh, you know, he'd ring every Saturday as well. It was, so it wasn't distant at all. And it, he would come in once every six weeks whenever he was in London go through the paper to find tooth comb and not his last words always in every conversation was your call. It's always your call. He never made a decision, but he would make it. He sometimes give you an intellectual reason why he didn't think something should run, but I didn't always follow, you know, that reasoning. Sometimes I went my own way and sometimes I listened to him and changed, you know, changed things, but uh, I loved it. He
1: questioned your decisions, but didn't, but didn't, 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 do- dominate them I guess he didn't,
0: didn't question the decision but questioned the the, the um, motivation sometimes gotcha. Gotcha. so you know this is a you know he would often say you know if we were doing a critical story of the Queen for instance he'd be saying do you really need to you know this elegant dignified lady and this is a man who's a Republican You know, is that a justifiable story you know you're you going to have her in tears next week because you've written a story about her falling out with I'm making this up by the way falling out with Prince Philip or making you're falling out is that really fair? You know, he would ask, and you'd it'd make you sit and think. Okay. I'd often get a team back in and say, "I've had Rupert on. What do you, you know? He's made this point, and they'd have to sit there and debate it because you'd, you'd wonder about, you know, justification of it. And um, and he questioned very much that you know, the story we didn't agree with, which you know caused the problem really was Jeffrey Archer, because yeah, you know,
1: I'd Archer for five years, and he. I was and this is it. This is basically. This was part of why you left, right? Is what the, the.
0: It was because you know I, I stuck my neck out and went for the story, and he's, he he had a point. Really, it was fourteen years ago that it happened. was it wasn't really a story right worth writing fourteen years after the event? I decided it was, um, and I think I was proven right. In the end because he was arrested, charged. I ended up being a witness in the Old Bailey, and uh, he went down for five years. Um, yeah, just, just the listeners who are his books are yeah his books are written his books are published by Harper Collins and Harper Collins owned by murdoch so <laughs> you know he had his editor jailing his best selling author as it was <laughs> he, he went to jail and, and wrote three books that were huge sellers <laughs> so um, and i saw archer not so long ago at a tube station he gave me a smile and a, a
1: little salute which was is that nice. Yeah. That's cool.
0: Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, it's, it, was... it should be a,
1: it should be a film now. or something. I don't know. Maybe it's not, but the, you know, there's so much going on there, isn't there? As you say, you're the, you're the, the editor of a, of a tabloid owned by the same guy who, who, um, was the publisher of the, of his best-selling author. He went to jail. He's an ex mp Yeah,
0: I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I don't regret the decision because I had a feeling that if I didn't run it, somebody else was going to, and it would get out that we'd yeah. somehow not run it for some internal political reasons but um yeah it was it was a sad day but you know i love working there and i love i love the people working there they were hugely professional people and uh you know i think it was a massive mistake closing the paper down it it was you know i I understand why they were given that advice but it just needed it just needed sorting out and uh you know it's that phone hacking just ran away with itself and I don't know the ins and outs of that because it was after my time but um you know it's a, it a great shame because the paper did an awful lot of good and and it and the great thing about the news of the world is it was read by people who read the Sunday Times and the News of the World the Mail on Sunday the News of the World it, it had more AB1 top-end readers <clears throat> than the Sunday Times and the Sunday Telegraph put together it's a remarkable reach and remarkable power and um you know, I remember the Archbishop of Canterbury used to write for us regularly and he um, <laughs> he invited me to Millennium Service at St. Paul's. And I found myself sitting there with my wife and uh, baby daughter, with prime ministers and heads of states <laughs> sitting around me and the editors of the world sitting in the middle of the congregation with them all. And he realised the power of the paper and um, I met him ironically right at the beginning of my editorship, at a party being thrown by Geoffrey Archer, his flat in London. <laughs> he, he came across the room, he tapped me on the shoulder and uh, he said, you're the editor of the News World, aren't you? And I said, oh, yes, Archbishop, please, you know, not at a party. He said, no, I just wanted to come over and tell you, I buy your paper every week to find out what my staff had been up to. Because <laughs> <laughs> the naughty vicars were one of the areas the paper excelled in. And uh,
1: right.
0: we became great friends, George and I, and... Um, and he wrote for the paper every Easter Christmas and, you know, he realised the news of the world was read by churchgoers. It had a fantastic place in the heart of the British public, which... Um,
1: it's, it's interesting had, to speculate where that, where that would be now in, in the digital internet world, isn't it? I wonder. I
0: agree. Um, I do agree. I mean, uh, it, it's very hard. I mean, the, the challenge Rupert Murdoch had was he had a very successful media company and a new media came along and he was very, very worried about And I suggested to him, for instance, that we we set up a we had a pop page in the paper. I said that pop page should be online, and we should be selling DVDs and videos and everything to our to our to our clients. And he said, "The trouble is, you know, HMV and Virgin are they're not going to advertise in the paper." And you can understand it was a it was a really difficult dilemma. And I maybe again arrogantly I try to prove a point. I I um, created my own record. <laughs> for the millennium, and I persuaded a record company to be our partners in it. And I said, "Why don't we create an album full of great hits from the last, you know, from the last decade, and call it the News of the World Greatest Hits Album?" So we did it, and it went platinum. It sold three hundred and seventy thousand copies. And um, I'm not sure I made myself particularly popular, proving that you know we could sell records, we could sell anything. But I think you know in hindsight well the great thing would have been to see that the papers that like news international should have been the the um the amazon really because they had they had a captive audience of customers yeah because they why had, would you do why would you do that to kill your advertising base very you know it was an impossible situation really but it's um
1: yeah you're right where would it be now i don't know where it would be it's interesting isn't it they were at, at, at that time there were powerful brands and um, but I guess by, by being so defensive, in the end, they lost that a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, but I can't, you can't blame them because no. you, know, yeah. you don't want to eat your own dinner, do you really, and, uh, or destroy your own dinner. It's just uh, very difficult. And that's why you know, we, we had lastminute.com in the same building. I, I think Rupert owned it. And because he was, in the end, saying, I can't, you know, we can't step into these areas where our advertisers, they all w- off and became a, you know, their own business and were very successful at it
1: right now you alluded to it a minute ago um you sort of had a letter from from rupert murdoch potentially offering you know a job in the us and I, I i don't want to go too much into that but it was a bit of a sliding doors moment that wasn't it because obviously at that point you set up pha media but you also said when we talked before, it's a a bit of a regret that you didn't take that or or maybe take it. I I know it wasn't a complete... No, I didn't.
0: I I wasn't sending up PHA media then. I was just about to start as editor-in-chief of Hello Magazine. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I'd given them my word. I'd signed a contract and I just thought I don't break contracts, you know, and um, so I was sulking a bit, but I also felt I'd accepted this new job and it just didn't seem right, you know, to to somehow disrespect the people who were about to employ me and... um, Looking back on it, I wish I—I just thought of myself because I mean, it was a very lovely letter, and he had his he had a particular phone number in there to ring him on. And um, didn't tell me there was a job; it just said, "If ever you want to come back to News International, call me on this number." So uh, there was a, a direct <coughs> invitation to, um, you know, to do something appropriate. And somebody is very senior. Subsequently, told me that there was a particular position on an offer, but I don't—you uh, know—I don't want to go any further into that because I'd be breaking confidences. But the, um, yeah I do regret it because uh, okay. he was he was a great guy to work for, and his senior team as well Les Hinton, who was executive chairman of News International, became chairman of the um, um, wall street journal. I mean they're great, great people, great people right.
1: um, but pretty soon after that, um, you left journalism in effect uh, to start up your own PR firm in your front room, as we've discussed and that, that was a massive gamble. Um, I'm just trying to work out, uh, you said, you do you regret leaving journalism? Because it's clearly something you're hugely passionate about, but you've had massive success since you've left it. Uh, it's a- I think I
0: left it at the right time. I think it's become so difficult. I mean, one of the reasons I left it, I was a mirror group, and we were making lots of people redundant. And I just didn't come into this business to do that sort of thing, really. I came to be a journalist, and um, I'd been asked by peers... To look at the magazines in the stable, and I'd redesigned and repurposed them all, uh, changed them all, you know, re- relaunched them. And I was just running out of steam, really, because um, you know I'd, I'd initially come on the basis that because Piers had said to me he wasn't sure he was going to stay editor of the Daily Mirror for much longer, he stayed longer than you know maybe we thought, and I just felt I just can't sit in an office doing nothing. It's just not my my style at all. Right. So we mutually agreed that I would go. And so I had a year's salary payoff and that sort of gave me the chance to start the company really, because I had a year not needing to earn any money. And um, that gave me a little bit of a safety net, but it was difficult. You know, I lived in, I had no office. In the end, a client gave me an office in, in, instead of a fee. So I was set up in in an office in Harley Street on my own with no fee from this client. And then, um, wrote to my favorite football club, West Ham, saying I thought their PR was was not good. And they hired me. They introduced me to a football agent who hired me. He took me to a, uh, um, a casino one night. They hired me. Um, so, I, you know, one led to another. And then the, the football agent then got involved in the takeover of Manchester City. So they hired me. And then <laughs> takeover of Portsmouth. They hired us. So we ended up going from one to, you know, Harry Redknapp then became a client when he got into all his problems. Um, so people came very close to him. He recommended me to a couple, so one recommended to another, and it all became very, you know, we had no new business uh, out We were just going from friends to friends,
1: really. But that's an interesting um, insight, isn't it? I mean, I know that's how it was in the early days. But when you when I hear you talk about how you've grown it since then, and it's obviously now um, uh, grown as a business hugely and scaled, but it, you, I think you said something when we talked before it wasn't really any great strategic plan you just no. you kept winning business
0: no there was just a just a plan to survive really and pay the mortgage and um, no you're right there was no there was no plan at all and um, I, my, my wife I have to say right from day one started to formulate a plan and um, you know could see I, I mean obviously crisis management was an area that I could get into I'd been the editor of a newspaper that's causing many of the crisis and only a few months before. So, you know, I had, I had a way into that. And also I'd edited hello magazine, so I had a big way into doing the softer side of stuff for for clients as well. So we had a few celebrity clients at that time, but we moved away from that and more corporate work. And um, I think also, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't believe I could do some of the things that we've ended up doing. And um, it's only when, just jumping in with two feet and some of the corporate, you know, we, we looked after Qatar when they were trying to win the world cup, you know, and got them over the line. That was incredibly difficult. And, um, I, I you know, I wouldn't, if you, if you'd asked me at the beginning, could you do this? I'd have said no. Mm, yeah, just yeah. like the, just like the Ecuador thing. I've always believed in just jumping in with two feet and going for it. And, um, and it's, it's always served me well, you know, as a journalist and reporter on the road time and time again, I, you know, won big. Scoops and big front page splashes through, just just believing, going for it, shutting my eyes and jumping in with two feet. And um, yeah, sort of. You know, I remember ringing Colonel Gaddafi at his palace in Libya once. Um, and everybody said I was mad. I said I'm just going to try to find his phone number. And I got him. <laughs> I got him on the phone it was in the middle of the time when we were bombing Libya. I mean, it was staggering. And. um what did he say? Can you start? Well, we, we were talking, uh, you know, he was trying to give his reason for, you know, how, how we were, you know, we were the enemy and what we'd done wrong. And, but over and over again, you know, it's amazing how you can pick up a phone and get through to people. Princess Diana, yeah. you know, she would, one of my colleagues, uh, a guy called Stuart Cutner, who's a managing editor, would go for lunch with her regularly and, um, you know, she would, Steer things our way. She would ring us, you know, with stories um that you know people think somehow we were as a newspaper pursuing her. Well, she was she was leading us to stories time and time again. I mean, I remember one call she made <clears throat> to us, and um she said, "Get your photographer at this particular spot, this particular day, this particular time," which we did. And uh, then she pulled up in a car, opened the boot, a guy ran in from the, from the shadows, ran in, jumped in the boot, she shut the boot, and drove into Kensington Palace. And this, that was a guy called James Gilby, and it became a massive story. And um, she set the whole thing up, you know. So wow. it's some of the things that people, you know, people don't realise how close the relationships were with the people we were writing about.
1: Wow. Um, but uh, what did you, uh, um, what did you make of the the, the, the phone hacking scandal? We talked about it a bit, and you, what was your looking back? It's a while back now. What is your
0: this thing very sad. You know, we uh, used private detectives in my day, but the, the strict orders were from me and from other editors, as far as I know, that you can only use certain methods, and I didn't mean illegal practices, but certain methods when you're investigating criminals. You know, you've got to be able to. You've got to be able to believe. My my golden rule was: can we stand up in court and defend our position? You know, can we stand up and say? We did this because, you know, I mean, we were doing counterfeit. I remember counterfeit money laundering um, operation. Our guy was undercover with them. We went to the police, um, you know, exposed the whole thing. And um, but, you know, you we needed a private detective to try and find the individuals um, that we knew were involved in it. And um, you know, I think you got it from following people, from you know having one sort of clue within that group of somebody who who was involved in it. But, you you, you know, the end must justify the means and you can't justify it when when you're hacking uh, celebrities. Yeah, sure. There's no justification for it, not in my view, anyway.
1: But you touched on it a minute ago. I mean, you're a PHA. You don't mind a controversial client or two, do you? You represented Qatar, Fred the Shred. What's your... It's an interesting... Um, perspective you have on, 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 is that everyone has the right for representation type element or is it? I do, I
0: I think, you know, if you're going to spin and lie for them, that's wrong. You know, I think you can't take a, you know, a despot from a country and and somehow try and turn him into, you know, into a Disney character. You can't do it, it's just wrong. But Fred, the thing about Fred was he was um, largely blamed for the complete crash of the, uh, you know, the banks. And all he wanted me to do was just to have a conversation with journalists and say, "I know you blame him for this, but what about? Have you considered this? Have you looked at this point?" Because he was he was one element of you know the banking system at the time, and he and you know they blamed him for this. Um, I will not with all the details, but the, the crash was thought to have come from this this deal he did with uh, the Dutch Ambro Bank, I think it was or NatWest. I can't remember all the details. But he had done the same thing with a different bank some years earlier, and his methods were very you know straightforward. And um, he didn't want he didn't want me spinning for him. All he wanted me to do was to um, particularly protect his family. I mean, they were away in France one stage, and the whole pack were trying to find their holiday home, and um, you know try to stop them doing that. And um, we would we I went up there several times. We talked late into the night over a glass of whiskey about the financial situation, but there was no, I didn't think there was anything dishonest about it. And Qatar, likewise, you know, Qatar had a had a campaign to win the World Cup. There's nothing, you know, corrupt about it, as far as I was aware. And um, there have been some allegations subsequent to us leaving them, but we were talking, all we did was explain the system, explain the how the, because everybody was saying, he's, how can he play football in 100 degrees heat? When well, they had air-conditioned stadiums, nobody believed it. We got the BBC and the Guardian to come out and see them. We just got the and, and the press were writing more and more extreme stories, often without a grain of truth. And My job was to go onto the press and say, you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong. Here's the evidence of, that completely counters your story. And I'm perfectly happy to do that if we've got proper evidence, but I won't, I won't represent clients and, and lie for them. And okay. um, just tell me, what's your, your
1: first big journal scoop? There was a, a nice little story around that, wasn't there? Which one was that? Well, I'm a Southampton fan, so I particularly... Oh, the first
0: big one in national papers, yeah. I mean, I thought you were talk about it in local papers. But oh, in national, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. local newspapers, I solved a murder, which was just um, unbelievable, a uh, serial killer. I, I'd been given a story about um, a, uh, a gentleman who was found dead in a river in his car in Lincolnshire, a guy called um, Tony Andrews. And I went to interview his wife and asked her why she, you know, why did she think he'd been found dead. What was behind it? She said, "I have no idea. It's completely wrong." Um, and this saw my local newspaper in Ilford. And I was Christmas shopping. About three weeks later, way off the high street, I was trying to park my car, and I saw in my rearview mirror his wife kissing this very, very tall man, six foot seven tall. Um, and three weeks after the death of her husband. So I rang my police contact and told them. And they said, uh, we know exactly who that is. Are you sure they're together? And they came down, they arrested him, and he got done for murder. And um, he, uh, he t- I mean, it was the most sensational case. It turned out that he and a team were had killed a number of people in the gangland, gangland vicinity and was, were burning their bodies and stuffing teddy bears with the remains <laughs> of the... Um, these uh, gangland people. And it became it was a huge, huge court case. But so, yeah, that was a local paper. And then a national paper. Um, well, uh, I've forgotten the story again. Oh, yeah, it, it was about the England centre-half, Mark Wright. That's right. Punched uh, Laurie McMenemy at half-time during a football match. His manager, they'd had a big bust-up and he punched him. McMenemy landed in the shower. And it, it was a front-page story in the paper. But there was no quotes from... Uh, Mark Wright or McMenemy so I was working in a local newspaper doing a shift on the Sunday people I took a week off and went to find Mark Wright couldn't find him found his dad persuaded his dad to introduce me and I met Mark at a snooker hall down in um, Southampton he said if you beat me I'll do the interview if I beat you I won't and I fortunately beat him but we were both useless I mean the score was like 350 to 349 or so because there were so many foul shots I beat him he did the interview he, he actually lost his England place over it but it was a massive coup for the paper and, um, and Mark and I
1: stayed friends for years actually nice um, and you touched on it before but the, the challenges of the media today it's such a different world from, from your day isn't it what, yeah um, do you look at it and think it's a sad state of affairs, or, or do you think they've got some? Well, wrong, I think
0: some well, wrong? one of the biggest problems with newspapers really is that they own their own turf. There's no there's no competition. You know, the Mail owns the middle market, the um, the Sun owns the down market, the Times owns the high market. So there's no it was a competitiveness that drove journalists. You know, they're all on the same stories, all trying to you know get the beat the opposition. You had a hell of a kicking if you got back to the office and the opposition had beaten you. Um, So that that competition fired it on. Now you know if you go on a story, and I'm not saying they 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 don't because one of the things is staff numbers have been cut so much. But you don't go on a story knowing that's you know your rival potentially could beat you to it. It's it's much more collegiate because they're going on, you know, maybe a COVID story that everybody's on. You're not trying to, you know, the the exclusivity doesn't really. have the power anymore, and that's that's sad. I think because it, I thought the papers were you know more competitive and better for it. But um, and also I think it's very very difficult for an editor now because, you know the headlines in the newspapers, any day like today, it's all about Maddie McCann. When we today we're talking, um, and those those stories were on the television yesterday. You know it's very very hard for the newspapers to be one step ahead. When you had a huge, and it, it's a sort of a self fulfilling prophecy, really. They cut the staff because they cut circulation. But when you cut staff, you don't get the exclusives. And that, again, makes the newspapers one step behind television. And so I feel like it's a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy that they're shrinking. I can't see. And yet, you, online journalism would be so much poorer without the traditional journalists, because most good online journalism is stolen from the newspapers
1: yeah yeah so you you worry where where that virtuous downward cycle is going to end up frankly
0: right very
1: difficult where do you just bring it back to public relations i mean one of the things i i see is that this pr in the uk anyway benefits from such a a prominent media um scene um but as that 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 um, the size and resources of those media organisations is reduced. In effect, do you worry about the implications of that for, for public relations?
0: I do. I just think it's. But I think we'll survive. I think it's. It's just um, stating the obviously I just think it's going to be a very different world. I went to see um, the uh, AJ fight in uh, New York with my son. And um, you know, world world championship fight, and we were sitting in the in the seats watching it. And uh, my son, who's uh, 19 in university, kept saying, that guy is this, that guy is that. And they go, I said, who are these guys? And they're, they're all, we were surrounded by influencers. There wasn't a journalist sitting next to us. Now, clearly the journalists were in the journalist pen, but there were so many people. I just didn't know who they were. And my agency and my staff know these people and know them very well. And I think it would just become more and more of that, you know, that individuals will carry a lot of power, um, they will be, there won't be the, you know, the four million readers, but there'll be 20,000 people who are actually really are interested in a particular subject they're talking about. And those influences will, will change the face of the media, I think, in the coming years. And we're it's only at it's only the beginning of that revolution at the moment. And you know, when you're looking at Zoom and you're looking at all the things that are happening, it's going to change beyond recognition in the next 10 years.
1: Phil, such an interesting conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. I've enjoyed it. Nice talking to you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.